0: Think about the last conflict you had with someone. How did you resolve it? Did someone apologize? I asked my friend Marsha the same question. Hello? Marsha. I'm calling because I wanted to talk to you about the apology you're about
1: to make. Well, I'm going to apologize to my husband, Steve. Um, I acted like an idiot. And I treated him in ways that were really unfair.
0: Relationships are complicated. We all slip up. And when we do, we don't always know how to fix it. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and this is Can We Talk? A show from Safe Space Radio about the things we'd struggle with less if we could talk about them more. For the next hour, we'll be talking about apologies. Because how we repair things can have a huge impact on how we live with each other and with ourselves. If thinking about apologies stirs up anything for you, or if there's an apology that you need to make, this show is for you. This is Can We Talk, a show from Safe Space Radio about the things we'd struggle with less if we could talk about them more. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine. Over the past year, the Me Too movement has exposed a serious problem with sexual assault and harassment in the workplace. But it has also revealed something else. A lot of us don't know how to apologize. Most people are taught we should apologize, but we may not have learned how. But first, why are apologies so important? For an answer, I turn to an apology expert, Dr. Harriet Lerner, a clinical psychologist who has made this subject part of her life's work. The fact is,
2: nothing is more important. We're all connected. We all screw up. We all unwittingly hurt others just as we're hurt by them. So the need to give and receive apologies is with us until our very last breath. And when done right, the apology can be deeply healing, and when apologies are absent or they're done wrong, they compromise relationships or they even end relationships.
0: We'll hear more from Harriet later, but first, I wanted a second opinion.
3: My name is Chloe Koloski, I'm in fifth grade. How do you feel about the words, I'm sorry? They're very important words. Just saying like a few very short sentences can fix a big thing. Chloe knows this from experience. I was once at school, and me and my friend got in an argument, and I said that everything that she was doing was super weird, and even though that's not like a super big insult, it was a big insult to her, and if someone said that to me, it would probably be a big insult to me. And so I felt super bad about it, and my teacher was like, I think you should go apologize because you'll feel a lot better when you do. And so I did. And then we ended up playing at recess that day.
0: Apologies are also a key part of mental health. In my psychiatry training, we learned about the principle of rupture and repair. This is the idea that we all make mistakes, but if we do a good job repairing those mistakes, our relationships can actually end up stronger than they were before. When I first learned about rupture and repair, I had a hard time believing it. But when I thought about my closest friends, I realized it's the people who've apologized to me, even for small things, that I trust the most. Many of these ruptures happen quietly, every day, like with Chloe. In other cases, ruptures affect whole groups of people with long-term consequences. That's the case for many of the young people Joseph Jackson works with. He's a mentor with Maine Inside Out, an organization that supports kids in juvenile detention. Joseph leads theater and performance workshops to support young people who are trying to start over after they've been released. With his guidance, they write original plays, which they perform in schools, theaters, and even for local law enforcement.
4: Writing and art is a way of self-healing and has a rehabilitative function. And so we use stories, um, true stories, that pretty much come from real background. Uh, many of our young people um, don't have stable housing, you know, very underemployed if they are, and unemployed. And so it's very difficult for them to um, overcome the stigma of, of being a felon. Could I imagine men in that place? Of course. And so, um, you can make a mistake, that's what human beings do.
0: Joseph sees himself as making people more human to each other. He told me a story about a young man named Cullen D'Ambrosio. Joseph met Cullen after he and some friends broke into his former high school when they were drunk and high. They trashed the teacher's lounge, smashed vending machines, and sprayed the fire extinguishers all over the school.
1: And we do have some breaking news for you this morning. We do know that Bonnie Eagle High School is closed today. After Cullen was
0: arrested, Joseph became his advocate at court to facilitate what is called a restorative justice
4: process. The real part of restorative means is that you're really trying to address the harm that has been caused to the person who has been harmed. And the criminal justice system is devoid of that. And so what, what restorative means to do is there has to be some healing that takes place. The harm when you have a kid, you know, throwing a softball and he breaks someone's window, well, we, you know, is jail good or is fixing the window better? And, and then maybe even fixing a few windows.
0: So restorative justice is a way to try and make things right, to serve justice instead of punishment. Joseph arranged for Cullen to appear at an all school assembly along with a group from Maine Inside Out. First, Cullen would apologize to the student body and all of the teachers.
4: He had an opportunity that, I mean, I think that every person that's ever been incarcerated probably would want to have. I mean, I can, you know, even now as I close my I can visualize him standing there and saying, hello, everybody, starting off with, hello, everybody. My name is Cullen DeBrasio. I decided to make a dumb decision. I ended up breaking in, vandalizing the school. And it was just a terrible mistake. And I just wanted to tell you guys, I am sorry for what I have done. And I'm trying to be better. I'm doing better things now, being able to give back to the community. So thank you for being able to come here today and able to give us the chance to perform for you.
0: After his apology, Cullen and the group from Main Inside Out performed a short, original play, composed of their own stories.
4: Do you see me and the changes I've made Can you see me? Do you see me? Can we see what's wrong
0: And how did the school yeah. respond?
4: <laughs> well, you know we, it was a lot of claps and we, you know everybody clapped at the end. young young girl stood up and she said,'m
3: I'm gonna I'm gonna do this and it might be dumb. But I think everybody who forgives you should stand up really quick and just give you a big round of applause
4: because... And i got to tell you that when I saw that entire auditorium stand, I was in the corner and I was just crying. It was one of the most poignant moments of my life. And I still say that. I think about it now when I tell that story. I'm, it was almost like I was being forgiven in some ways. And I wasn't even the one that had done anything. For me, I think one of the things about art that is so beautiful is that it touches on something that is essential, and is true, and is pure, you know? And, and if you can touch that, and if people can see that in other people, and that's what happened that day. People saw themselves, their flaws, and they saw their own purity, too. Simultaneously, that yin and yang exists beside each other.
0: this story from Joseph, I got in touch with Cullen. I asked him how he felt before his apology. How did he think the students and the teachers would react?
4: While I was sitting in Cumberland County Jail, I was asking myself, what do you think they're going to do? They're probably going to tell you to go, get out. I was putting myself down, like burying myself. I wouldn't have forgave me for that, so why should they?
0: What has it been like for you since? Like how, does that change something in you?
4: That moment I was able to look back on and say, oh my, like I did something good and I'm able to do good and just be able to use that as a guide really.
0: I think we sometimes avoid apologizing because it feels too close to complete failure. As if admitting that we've done something bad means that our whole value as a person is in question. That we are entirely bad or weak, not just our behavior. That is shame. It's safe to say that the more ashamed we feel, the harder it is to apologize. Paradoxically, when we can acknowledge our mistakes as bad decisions, rather than statements about who we are, we might end up reconnecting to a sense of our own goodness. Cullen got the power to redefine himself. He wasn't just an incarcerated kid or a troublemaker. He was a vulnerable, whole person capable of change. In the end, talking with Joseph and Cullen left me wondering how many layers of responsibility there are. When young people act out, it's often a reflection of their pain, a reflection of the way their families, schools, or even their culture or government have failed them. Often these behaviors are a cry for help. If we acknowledge the ways that kids who end up in the criminal justice system have suffered before they acted out, then restorative justice provides them with the support they needed all along. More after the break.
3: Support for this program comes from the National Alliance on Mental Illness and we're happy to share the following public service announcement.
0: Over 40 million people in the U.S. will experience a mental health condition this year. That's one in five of us. Many suffer in silence. They're your friends, neighbors, and loved ones. NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, provides life-changing support and education so that no one walks the path of mental illness alone. Show you care. Walk with us for mental health. To walk, sponsor, or volunteer, visit namiwalks.org. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and you're listening to Can We Talk? A show from Safe Space Radio about the subjects we'd struggle with less if we could talk about them more. We've been talking about apologies and their power to heal. But in case you thought this topic was straightforward, it turns out that apologies can happen in the most unexpected ways. Social worker Maggie Murphy explains how she was able to apologize to a wounded part of herself after years of struggling with an eating disorder.
5: My dad had had some health problems, and I remember thinking, if my dad died, maybe I'd lose some weight. And I remember having that thought, and I just, like, didn't recognize myself anymore. The majority of my eating disorder was anorexia and that meant just being extremely controlling and aware of anything that went into my body. I remember once I go, I was really hungry and I had a handful of my roommate's fruit loops and I was like obsessed with that many days afterwards being like I got to make up for these fruit loops. I would not eat anything all day. And then, at night, I would make myself, like, my one little piece of chicken and my little piece of broccoli and have that and then still be really, really hungry. My self-talk during this time was constant and really loud, saying things like, if I don't try to control everything and try to be as thin as I possibly can, I'm going to be destined to be unhappy. I have this dream one night that really changed, it changed everything for me. So I'm in my childhood home, you know, it's over hundred years old and it has lots of little crawl spaces. And you know, you open a door and there's like another door or there's the furnace. My room was on the third floor, the top floor of the house, and the dream starts and I'm just in a panic because there's an animal in my room. I think it was a bat. I was in fear for my life. And all I can think to do is open my closet door and the animal flies into it and I shut it. Momentarily, there's such relief. And then there's the sort of second wave of panic oh God, what do I do now? You know, it's trapped in the closet, but I still have to deal with it somehow. I'm thinking, I can't tell my parents. I can't tell anyone about this. The way that I decide to deal with it is I decide that I'll forget about it. So I go about my daily life and feel really, really guilty that there's this living being trapped in my closet, but way too scared to to deal with it. And eventually, I kind of forget about it. And then I remember that it's there. I remember thinking, "Oh my god, I'm a terrible person. I've like killed this thing. I got I have to go. I got to open the door." So I go to my to my closet door and I open it and all the fear just comes rushing back. I can't even cope with looking in the closet and investigating and seeing what's happened to it. So I I open the door and I run down the stairs in this dream. They felt really big and I'm just flying down them. The animal is not dead. It's chasing me. I get to the kitchen. I'm about to open this back door and I see out of the corner of my eye that it is not an animal. I slowly turn around and I see that it is a little girl in this little white, like, white nightgown, and that she's starving, and I can see all her little bones, and I know pretty immediately that it's me, like, I, I recognize myself. I don't hesitate at all, I just, I run over to her, and I pick her up, and she puts her head on my shoulder, and I just say, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I see you now, and I'm never going to do this to you again. I'm never going to let anybody hurt you. I'm here now. I mean, the... The dream just, it changed everything for me because I always, I felt like I, I was hurting my, I, I knew with my eating disorder that I was hurting myself, but I didn't see why that mattered. And I didn't realize that I was hurting this, this young, innocent part of me that did not deserve any of that. And having this dream made this emotional shift for me that where I was finally able to, to actually like feel compassion for myself. I'm still very much in the process of earning this little girl's trust back. The more that I can care for myself, the more compassionate I can be towards myself, the stronger the trust gets and the less enticing the eating disorder feels. When
0: you first told me that you'd had this dream about apologizing to yourself, I was so touched by that because I had never thought of doing that. And it occurred to me You know, we hear all the time, I hear all the time, people saying, I can't forgive myself for this. Like they've forgiven me or God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. And the immediate thought I had after you told me about apologizing to yourself, at least in your dream, was that I wanted to go and ask my patients that when someone tells me I can't forgive myself, would be to say, well, have you apologized to yourself? Like, wow. And so it makes me want to ask you, you have, since this dream, apologized to the child who you abandoned and punished and starved at some level. But have you forgiven the part of you that starved her? I
5: think as important as apologizing to that young part of myself in the dream was to stop viewing my eating disorder as this evil thing that I had done to myself or this this bad bad behavior that I needed to rid myself of. It's kind of like the canary in the mine now, and I realize that when eating disorder thoughts come up, well, most of the time, I don't take them literally. I kind of think, oh, how am I abandoning myself? What part of myself am I locking in the closet? So, oh my god, yeah, I have all the compassion in the world, and I totally, I I really forgive myself.
0: There's a concept in Judaism called teshuva. Basically, teshuva is a user's manual for how to apologize effectively. It's a series of steps required to make things right, specific actions you have to take. But teshuva is also a recipe for transformation. Jewish teaching says that the act of saying I'm sorry is only one step in a deeper internal process.
6: The notion of teshuva is that You go through a process of of repentance and, and really renewal so that you can restore yourself to your essential goodness, to love, to healing, whatever it is that you're trying to get back to, however you've strayed. The path of teshuva is an opportunity to return to the true path. That's Daniel Barron, a reporter
0: and columnist for the Los Angeles Jewish Journal.
6: Teshuvah requires that there must be an, an apology, and an apology includes an oral confession in which the transgressor must specify the sin. To specify the sin,
0: that's sometimes easier said than done, as Danielle understands firsthand. Since 2016, she's been engaged in a very public version of this process with a man who sexually assaulted her during an interview, the prominent Israeli scholar Ari Shavit. As a young reporter, she'd gone to interview him in a hotel lobby. An hour later, she was in the bathroom hiding from Shavit after he'd repeatedly grabbed her.
4: Shavit, whose book, My Promised Land, was a bestseller, enjoyed months of enormous celebrity before it was revealed that he had groped and harassed a bunch of women in their teens and 20s during book tours in America.
6: That's a Tel Aviv news program, The Promised Podcast. I shouldn't have had to be on alert for my safety, my sense of security, to be a woman and feel that you constantly have to be on the defensive, that on on some level you are walking your life through a kind of sexual war zone.
0: Danielle wrote about her experience in the Jewish Journal, but decided not to name Shavit directly.
6: She didn't expect that her story would become front page news. And eventually what happened is uh, Shavit outed himself. He came forward uh, because of the pressure and said, it was me. Um, I just thought we were flirting, though. At that point, my fidelity was to the truth. I wasn't there to convince him of what he had done wrong. I said, this was not flirting, this was assault. And and then, of course, um, a couple other women came forward. Here's the promised podcast
4: again. As complaints mounted, Chavit issued first a weird non-apology followed by a more thorough apology, followed by an announcement that he was withdrawing from journalism and public life.
6: people who have been victimized, people who have been hurt, abused, etc. It is so important for them to hear their abuser say, not just, I'm sorry, I am sorry that I did X, Y, and Z to you. Unfortunately, so many times there is complete denial and silence, and this is devastating. So an apology, a real apology, can actually contribute immensely to undoing trauma.
0: Many of us are asking what, if anything, perpetrators like Shavit can do to right their wrongs. Is there a way for them to meaningfully re-enter public life? Teshuva offers one answer to that question.
6: The most beautiful idea, really, at the end of the day about Teshuva is that repentance isn't complete when you've just apologized and you've gone through this process, it actually demands, true repentance demands a complete spiritual transformation. That's the high ultimate goal. You actually can say at the end of this process, I am a different person than the one who, who did that. And so I think the only way we can truly evaluate the integrity and authenticity um, and genuineness of the remorse and the apology of some of these men is to see where we're at six months from now. How are they gonna spend the next six months? How are they gonna spend the next year?
0: Shavit did spend the last year or so in a kind of exile, out of the public eye.
6: And recently, while traveling in Israel,
0: Danielle agreed to meet him in person. She chose a public place, a cafe, and she stationed a good friend around the corner as a security measure. It had been four years since their first meeting, when he'd assaulted her.
6: These are the kinds of things you're thinking before you go in. You're like, do we shake hands? Do we like, do we touch at all? Is it is it is it kind of cold? Is it are you warm? Like you you don't really know, you don't really know how it's going to feel. I would say we spent probably in part because we were both quite nervous about what was going to go down, and you know you don't know if this meeting is going to last fifteen minutes or. Um, or longer and um, so we were we were just talking and at one point he he stopped me and he said Danielle if it's okay with you can I say something personal (laughs) And I'm going like oh god (laughs) let's not do personal Um, you know so I was a bit timid about saying yes but of course I was like of course you know what do you want to say and he said you know he said, I, I can't believe how much intellectual synchronicity we have. I said, well, this is the conversation we might have had last time if things hadn't gone in a different direction. And I have to tell you, his face, I mean, it was like, a sh- like this. I, I saw the realization ripple across his face when I said that. I think that was the moment that he realized how thoroughly he had objectified me, that he couldn't have even conceived that we could possibly have had such a conversation. And I think that was when he realized like, oh, that's that's part of where I went wrong. Like I just, I didn't see her as a human being. That was a really powerful moment for me. That was the first moment that I felt, I felt like a person again with him. And that was actually the moment that segued into a very deep apology, a very deep and a very emotional apology for me to go from being the sexual object to just another human being sitting across the table who's capable of uh, engaging in in a meaningful and interesting way that's that was the healing part
0: does any part of you think that within the culture of male sexual entitlement and what we now understand to be this enormously widespread culture of sexual harassment and assault of women in professional settings do you think there's any possibility that Ari Shavit really didn't know that it literally might have been unintentionally actually thought this was flirtation
6: I absolutely yes I, I do know I, I, I believe him I believe that he was oblivious to the impact that he was having on me and I have said as much to him since um, when he issued his second public apology and used the word blind I've been blind that was when I knew he was starting to tell the truth it doesn't mean that it still wasn't wrong. In fact, I think it demands all the more so this spiritual reawakening, because when you are causing someone harm unintentionally or you're not aware of the harm you're causing, that's when you like really need to wake up.
0: We'll be right back with ideas you can use to make your apologies more effective. If this show inspires you to make an apology or to approach one in a new way, give us a call at 617-600-8419 and leave us a message with the story. We'd love to hear about it.
3: Support for this program comes from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, developing solutions to support strong families and communities to help ensure a brighter future for America's children. More information is available at aecf.org.
0: I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and you're listening to Can We Talk?, the show from Safe Space Radio, about the things we'd struggle with less if we could talk about them more. We're talking about the power of a good apology. Earlier in the show, I called my friend Marcia to hear about an apology she wanted to make to her husband, Steve. I gave her a call back. So how did it go?
1: It, it was great, actually. Um, and we talked a lot about expectations. We really had a great conversation about what happens when you have expectations. Mm. And someone doesn't live up to them. And you don't tell them. And how you could walk around with that for who knows how many years.
0: (laughs) Right. And
1: it really wasn't about him. It was really about me. Like, he didn't do anything that wasn't okay. You really owned it. Yeah. That's the only time I think it works. I think if I want to blame him or anybody and not own my part of it and be willing to look at my part of it, then it would never work.
0: My mother taught me the same thing, but not just by telling me. She taught me by modeling it. I was 24 at the time, living in Washington, D.C. My mom was in Montreal where I grew up. I was trying to have a more open and authentic relationship with her, so I decided to tell her over the phone that I was having sex with my boyfriend. I grew up in a religious household, and we definitely did not talk about these things. My mother lost it. She started lecturing me about lust and the Sermon on the Mount. Then I tried to respond, and she hung up on me. I was stunned. My mother is not the kind of person who hangs up on anyone. Two weeks later, I'm at my brother's graduation, studiously trying to avoid my mother at all costs, but she finally kind of cornered me. And she said, I want you to know that I was wrong. I thought you were wrong, and now I realize it was me. I am not asking you to forgive me because I don't want to burden you, but I'm so sorry for treating you like that. What strikes me when I tell this story is how completely my mother owned her behavior. And when she didn't ask me to forgive her or put any pressure on me to take care of her or make her feel better, I felt so loved. I forgave her without even trying. When we encourage
2: Forgiveness or push forgiveness, we actually leave the hurt party feeling alone and abandoned and betrayed all
0: over again. That's Dr. Harriet Lerner again. We heard from Harriet earlier in the show. She's a clinical psychologist who recently published an entire book about apologies.
2: There is a myth in this culture that there can be no peace or healing without forgiveness, and forgiveness is the only path to a life that's not mired down in bitterness and hate. It is not true. You do not need to forgive someone who's hurt you. That shows no remorse or interest in listening to your feelings.
0: In my practice, I see adults who are abused or neglected as children wrestling with how to heal. There's a belief in our culture that forgiveness is the only way to be free of suffering. So there's a lot of pressure to forgive. It's of no
2: value to make the Hurt Party feel rushed or pressured. A true apology does not ask the Hurt Party to do anything, not even to forgive.
0: We've been witnessing countless attempts at apology in response to the me too movement beginning with Weinstein
2: onward you don't really need to be an apology expert to recognize a sleazy gaslighting non apology it's important to understand that a public apology is not like a private apology a public apology is a performance it is simply a performance it is to save one's own reputation and one's own skin. A personal apology is very different, and a personal apology has the potential, most often, to heal the relationship and and to be sincere.
0: I asked Harriet what she sees as the major ways we don't get our personal apologies right. One is with the word, but.
2: I'm sorry that I forgot to call you on your birthday, but I was just overloaded with work. Everything fell through the cracks. The word but almost always signifies a rationalization, an excuse, or a criticism. Get your but out of your apology. And the second way that people muck it up, and this can be very subtle, is that we focus on the other person's feelings and reactions rather than our own behavior. For example, to apologize by saying, I'm so sorry that I offended you with that joke that I told. That's not an apology. The apology would be the joke that I told was insensitive, it was out of line. I apologize for being so insensitive and I want you to know it will not happen again. Take full responsibility for what you said or did or failed to say or do without any ifs, ands, and buts because it's not the words, quote, I'm sorry, that really heals the injury. The Hurt Party wants us to really get it. They want us to validate and care about their feelings. They want us to carry some of the pain that we've caused them to feel. So the the real apology for something important is saying to that person, the Hurt Party, yes, I get it. I screwed up. I was wrong, your feelings make sense, and I want you to know not only that I would never do that again, but I'm going to be thinking about this for a long time. It's not going to slip out of my
7: head.
0: Hey, Harriet, if I, if I have to make an apology that's really important, I sort of go in, rem- remember Anne. remember, the point is to understand them. Not to not to be understood, and you really have to be sort of like reminded approximately every thirty seconds. <laughs>
2: exactly, exactly. And also important is that an apology shouldn't be a quick way out of a conversation. If the person is coming to see me in therapy because the hurt or the harm that they did is something serious it's not just spilling red wine on their friend's carpet, then it's not enough to say, I'm sorry. I want them to know they may be in for a long distance run and that I'm sorry is a good start, but it may involve a number of conversations where the wrongdoer really has to sit on the hot seat And listen to the hurt party's anger and pain and really be present with that and carry some of the pain. And that is a very difficult thing to do.
0: I'm curious if you could help me understand the pressures on men that are different than those on women around making apologies. Perhaps the number one risk factor for being
2: an under-apologizer is being raised male and for being an over-apologizer, being raised female. I know women in my generation were raised to feel guilty and apologetic for using a valuable oxygen in the room. I mean, we were raised to be guilty about everything. Guilty if we were leaving our work for our children and guilty if we were leaving our children for our work and guilty if we didn't have children and guilty if we didn't have work and guilty about feeling guilty because guilt isn't good for children. And men don't do that. I asked Harriet, what makes it harder for some men to apologize? Apologizing means sharing vulnerability. It is vulnerable to apologize. You don't know how your apology will be received You don't know if it will open up the floodgates to more criticism. A lot of men tell me this. So there's a a vulnerability in apologizing. And as we know, men are not raised to be experts in vulnerability.
0: Current models of American masculinity do men and boys such a disservice. When we shame boys for crying, when we tell them to toughen up or humiliate them for expressing vulnerability, is it any wonder men might find it hard to apologize? I've done a lot of thinking about how apologies can change relationships. But as Safe Space Radio embarked on this project, I knew that I also wanted to explore whether apologies can change our lives at an institutional or even national level. After the end of apartheid in South Africa, Nelson Mandela established the Truth and Reconciliation Commission or the TRC. The commission allowed South Africans to tell their stories of human rights abuses, give testimony and request amnesty from government officials, all in the interest of reconciliation. Since 1994, the Truth and Reconciliation model has been used worldwide. In the U.S., the first governmental TRC was in the state of Maine, between the state government and four Native tribes who collectively identify as Wabanaki. Since the late 1800s, Native children have been forcibly removed from their families, first to boarding schools and then to white foster homes. The United Nations calls this a form of genocide. In 1978, Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act to protect Native children. But generations of Wabanaki adults continue to feel the impact of being taken from their families and their culture. Denise Yarmal-Altervator is one.
7: I live on the Pleasant Point Reservation, and I am past Macquarie and um, work around child welfare, particularly the Indian Child Welfare Act. In 2000, I was contacted by the child welfare department and asked if I would talk about what it was like when I was removed from my home here on the reservation and put into a white foster home. I was only seven years old when the state came and took us. They showed up in station wagons and they put our stuff in garbage bags and put us in the cars and they didn't talk to us. They didn't say anything to us.
0: Denise ended up in foster care, where she and her sisters were physically abused for years.
7: I had never spoken about the experience, ever, to anybody. I I didn't even know that I had this story to tell. Denise eventually co-founded Maine's Truth and
0: Reconciliation Commission.
7: And the first meeting I showed up to, there were DHHS workers from the state there. When I walked into the room, I felt anger. I felt fear. I felt like I was a little girl again. I just did not want to be in that room with those people. But I, I stayed there. And every month we met, and every month I had those same feelings about the white DHS workers. When we decided to do the Wabanaki Truth and Reconciliation Project with them, I was the one who insisted that the project be between the tribes and the state of Maine. We knew it was gonna be difficult, but in my mind and the mind of all the native child welfare workers, our first priority was healing. That was always our priority. As we went through the process and I went around and told my story, I began to remember more and more of it. So in trying to deal with the truth of what happened, I was also dealing with a lot of unknown that as an adult and a mother was really confusing to me. And one of the things that I had to deal with was a lot of guilt. You know, I was a I was a young mother. I was 17 when I had my first child. I was 18 when I had my second one. I was not prepared to be a good mother. I was emotionally a wreck because of what had happened to me. My daughter kept insisting that I was physically abusive when she was little, and I always brushed her off because I don't I never remembered that. And then one day my son mentioned it and it really bothered me a lot. So I went to his house and he um, was sitting on the couch, smoking a cigarette. And I said to him, was I abusive to you when you were little? And he looked at me and he said, mom, how can you not remember? And I said, Brian, I don't remember, but I've been going through this process of truth and reconciliation, and I've been able to tell my truth of what happened to me, and I'd like to hear what your truth is. So I sat down, and I said, I need to hear it. I need to hear what happened. And he started crying, and he told me everything. I had a lot of tears, but I tried not to cry over him because I didn't want him to stop. But I was devastated. I said, Brian, there is nothing in this world I could ever do to make up for what I did to you when you were little. He said, yes, there is, Mom. And I said, what? What could I ever do? He said, you could be my mom again. He said, I need you. He said, and you haven't been there for me. That was the first experience of real healing as a result of the Truth and Reconciliation that happened for me right there that moment with my son. And to me, that's what the Truth and Reconciliation was all about. It really has to do with listening. I had a space where my voice was heard, and so did a lot of other people. And that's something that everybody needs. It's so healing just to be able to be heard. And so that's what he needed. He needed to be able to tell me, Mom, this is how I felt. You know, Mom, this is what you really did to me. I think we forget with apologies that
0: listening to the person who's been hurt, tell me about the impact this had on you. That's the essential ingredient. It is.
7: I know that's not the end of it. There's more that needs to be done, but it's a start. What do you think is needed when, you know, at a more systemic
0: level? Like what kind of apology still needs to happen at a larger level,
7: do you think? The state needs to step up and provide services for people in this community to be able to have treatment for substance abuse. Because that is the result of the trauma that this community has has had to endure. If you just talk about the trauma that the state has inflicted, never mind federal. Let's just talk about what the state has inflicted. And you go through the timeline and you go through the intense poverty. Because when I was little, I remember being hungry all the time and I remember stealing food because I was always hungry. The way we lived was set up to be that way. It was, you know, it was horrible. So imagine what my mother had to endure and my grandparents had to endure and their parents, what they had to endure. All that trauma, people have turned to substance abuse just to to numb all the pain that they have had to go through. So. In lieu of an apology, the state needs to step up and provide intense long-term treatment for people who are addicted to opiates. That's our need. They need to help people stop dying. Our people are dying from overdoses.
0: Between 1999 and 2015, Native communities in the U.S. saw a five-fold increase in opiate overdose deaths. According to the CDC, the increase in that period is higher for Native people than for any other group. True reconciliation is an elusive goal, but Denise's story and the work of the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission are emblematic of how states and countries are grappling with historical genocide. Apologies begin with telling the truth. In 2008, the prime ministers of Australia and Canada both made national apologies for their country's treatment of Indigenous people. In 2017, the Canadian government paid nearly $600 million in reparations for survivors of residential schools, which had forcibly removed Indigenous children from their families. Here's Canada's Prime Minister, Justin
4: Trudeau. These are the hard truths that are part of Canada's history. These are the hard truths we must confront as a society. Today, I humbly stand before you to offer a long overdue apology.
0: As we talked with people about apologies, we heard some of the same recommendations over and over again. If you need to say you're sorry, don't make excuses or stress your good intentions or use the words if or but in your apology. Instead, focus on your behavior and the impact you had. Don't ask for anything, including forgiveness. Rather, ask about how this affected them and listen wholeheartedly to their answers. Validate the other person's feelings, even if what you did was unintentional. Name what you are apologizing for fully, with specifics. Acknowledge that what you did was wrong, but understand that no matter how bad it was, it does not define you. You do not have to drown in shame. Keep all blame out of your apology. Offer to keep talking about it. An apology is the beginning of a dialogue, not a way to avoid the subject or their feelings in the future. Offer to make restitution and let them name what that would be. If we can open ourselves to hearing the pain our actions have caused and offer to make things right, our apologies have enormous power to heal. But it's up to us to do that work. Apologizing well is an act of courage both personally and politically. An apology has the power to mend what is broken within ourselves, our families, our communities, and even among nations. We might not always get it right, but when in doubt,
3: listen to the experts. I don't think there's ever a way to apologize perfectly. Try to do it in like a good tone of voice. Don't be like, oh, I'm sorry. You do something like nice, like I'm really sorry and I feel really bad about it. We'd
0: love for you to join this conversation. If this show inspires you to go out and make an apology, give us a call at 617-600-8419. That's 617-600-8419. And leave us a message with your story. Visit us at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to our complete interview with Harriet Lerner, find more information about the process of teshuva, or read our extra tips about how to make a good apology. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Safe Space Radio. Many thanks to our senior producer, Britt Hansen, program director and editor, Dana Glass, our editorial advisors, Jim Russell and John Bewin, and our creative advisory team, Sarah Lennon, David Moltz, Mary Townsend, Phil Walsh, Prisca Nyonzima, Sandy Lovell, Maggie Murphy, David Goodman, Clint Willis, and Molly Haley, and our reviewers, Loring and Louise Conant, Margot and Roger Milliken, and Sophie Gould. Thank you to all our donors who make this work possible and to listeners like you who give us a reason to make this show. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward. Thanks for listening.